God is for you. He wants to be on your side. Now, I know some of you right now are going, Patrick, I didn't realize you were a motivational speaker. And, and I want to tell you, I'm not. That's not what I'm trying to do today. I'm not going to be talking about living in a van down by the river. No, I'm lots of... <laughs> Lots of Saturday Night Live references today. No, I'm not going to do it. Like, that's, that's not me. Because I can't tell you how to live a life where you don't feel worthless. I can't do that. I, I can't stand up here and say, you know what? All you got to do is recognize that God is for you, and you'll never feel worthless again. Because I don't think it's true. Because I still struggle with it every day. Even though in my head and in my heart, I know that I am loved. I know that I am valuable. I know that I am cared for. I still have that niggling little voice in the back of my head that says, but you're no good. You're a failure. You're completely and utterly worthless. So I'm not going to give you some great profound bit of knowledge that's going to save your life and change it for forever. But I do want to share one thought with you. And that is that even if you feel worthless, even if you are worthless, God still wants to do amazing things through you. God still wants to use you in an amazing way to change the face of this world. But what can God do with me? What can God do with you? Here at Venture Church, we like to look to the Bible for the answers to life's most important questions. And I think if we look to the Bible, we'll see that God can do a lot of stuff with people who are messed up. In fact, everything God has ever done except for sending Jesus to this world has been with people who were messed up. Even getting Jesus into the world was through people who were messed up. Let me do some name dropping for you. You guys heard of a guy named Noah? He built a big boat, saved all of life on earth except for the sea creatures one time. Yeah, that guy, uh, he was a pass-out drunk. I don't know if you read that part of the Noah story. Like, everybody stops when they get off the boat. But Noah, after he gets off the boat and finds grapes, makes some wine, gets so drunk that he passes out naked in the yard, and his sons have to come and cover him up. That's Noah. That's the guy that saved all life on planet Earth. Or you go further into the story, and you find Abraham. Abraham, this 90-year-old man that God says, you're going to be a daddy. He was so old. But the nation of Israel was birthed through him, through his son that came nine years later. Abraham was a polygamist and a liar. You go further into the line of Abraham and you meet David. A David that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. And David was an adulterer and a murderer and also a polygamist. And you go forward and you see prostitutes and you see Elijah who was suicidal and you see Isaiah who preached naked. I can't even imagine. Please, you also don't imagine. Job went bankrupt. Peter was an angry, angry man who denied Christ. The disciples couldn't even stay awake for a couple of hours while Jesus was praying. You ever fallen asleep praying? Martha worried about everything. Paul was overzealous for religion. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. <laughs> God took these prostitutes and murderers and these clinically depressed people, if we were to actually write it down on paper and see what they were doing in their life, 
And he created the world that we now know through them. He created Christianity through Jesus working through them. He did it through them. Now, there's one guy I didn't mention. And this is going to be in Judges chapter 6 is the guy we're going to talk about. This is the one that resonates the most with me. This is the one that's probably, in my opinion, one of the most worthless people in the Bible that God does something amazing through. It's in Judges chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your own Bible, uh, there's some on the floor around you. You can get one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one with you. Actually, if you do have a Bible, you can still take that one with you. Uh, we give those away, and we want you to have the Word of God in, a, in an easily readable format. Uh, you can also use your phone. Uh, there's a Bible app. It's really handy. Or it's going to be on the screen behind us. We'll be in Judges chapter 6. I want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Judges so you can understand what's going on and why this is important before we get there, though. Uh, the book of Judges is about the nation of Israel, uh, the people of God, uh, and how they had a really hard time being the people of God. Uh, they moved into the promised land. It's after they walked around in the wilderness for a long time. They got in there and they started hanging out with the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Malachites and the Amalekites and all the other ites that are there. And they're doing this stuff and they get intermingling and intermarrying and start learning about their gods and think, oh, well, that's pretty cool. Baal's the god of the harvest? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up an altar to him. And Asherah's the goddess of fertility? I'm going to set up a, a pole to her and we're going to do these cool things and we're going to worship them and God. Now, I don't know if you know this about God, but he says, don't do that. He says, I'm not cool with you worshiping somebody else. He says, I am a very jealous God. And so as the Israelites would drift away from God and drift over here and be like, I'm going to worship Baal and I'm going to worship Asherah and I'm going to worship the God of the Malachites, the Amalekites and the Hittites and all these guys, God would say, well, I'm going to pull back my protection from you. And then those people, the Amalekites and the Malachites and the Hittites would come in and take over Israel for a little while. And then after God thought they'd been punished enough, he would raise up a judge, a man or a woman that was strong in the power of God, raise them up, and they would come and save the people for a little while. And everybody would be like, oh, wait, that's right, God is the best, because he's the one real God. And then they would fall again, and they would raise them up again. And it's like this roller coaster of we love God, we hate God. We love God, we hate God. And it just keeps never going back up as high again. But that's the book of Judges. And one of the judges that we meet, we're getting ready to, to get into right now, this is where he starts off. Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah. A car for you? I'm just kidding. Uh, wrong Oprah. He came and sat down under the oak at Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of history of agriculture real quick so that you can understand what's happening here. Gideon is threshing wheat. Now, in order to do that, what you need is a barn. And the reason you want a barn is you open up the doors on both sides of your barn and it creates a wind tunnel. And so wind is just whipping through there. And you take your wheat and you just slam it on the ground and you hit it with sticks and you do all kinds of crazy stuff. And that separates the seeds from the chaff and the shaft and the, the grain and all that. And then you would take pitchforks and you'd throw it up in the air. And the wind from the wind tunnel would wipe away everything but the seeds because they were heavy and they would fall back to the ground. And so doing it in a barn in a wind tunnel made it super easy. You didn't have a lot of work to do. You didn't have to get in and pick out the grains. You didn't have to, to work really hard. You just beat the weed on the ground and then threw it up in the air. That's all you had to do. But it says Gideon was threshing his wheat in a wine press. 
So now we've got to learn about winemaking real quick. The way they would do that is they would take a big vat, probably that only came up about knee-high, waist-high, and they would put it, fill it with grapes, and they'd climb in, they'd mash them, and there'd be a pipe on the end that would let it drain out, all the juice, and then they would be able to make wine. Maybe they had a, a, a top that would come down on it. But Gideon was in a wine press threshing wheat. Do you now understand the problem with that? He's trying to hide in a thing that's only about this high. So he's laying down in a wine press. Tapping some wheat on the ground, picking up some seeds, moving inside. Working super hard. Why? Because he's afraid. Because he is a worthless coward. And the Midianites, if they saw him, would come and take his seed. Come and take his, his grain so he wouldn't be able to make some bread. And so he hid. It's very important for you to understand that he was hiding because he was a coward, because he thought he was worthless, because this is what happens in the next verse. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Sounds like a mighty warrior, right? No, that's, that's not mighty. There's nothing mighty about hiding to, so that you can get a little bit of bread or grain to make some bread. That, there's nothing mighty about that. But Gideon understands that. He's, these worthless feelings come back to him. But he knows God knows what he's doing. God has already given him the right title. So Gideon, he, he's like, I don't know what's going on. So he asks the angel a question. He says, pardon me, Lord. Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, like you say, then why has all this happened to us? Why am I hiding in a wine press threshing wheat? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, and I love this because Gideon is like, You're going to call me, you say you're with me, you're going to say I'm mighty, but I can't do anything and you've not done anything and I feel completely worthless. I feel like you just abandoned us. And this is what the angel says. Go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? The angel's like, you want God to send somebody? Done. You go. And Gideon said, whoa, 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 pardon me, my Lord. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. And he says, I'm the youngest son of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe of Israel. I am basically nothing. How are you going to send me? I'm completely worthless. And Gideon wants to make sure the angel knows that and sees exactly who he's getting, getting, uh, dealing with. But God tells Gideon, basically, I know who I got. I've come to the right place. I come to the right person because I'm God and I'm that good. Here, I got a job for you. I want you to go into your town. I want you to go into the place where they have the worship set up for Baal and the, and the altar set up for Asherah. And I want you to break the altar of Baal and break, cut down the altar of Asherah and sacrifice a bull to the Lord God. Build an altar to the Lord God with the broken pieces of that and use the wood from the Asherah pole as the fire. And Gideon thinks about it for a second. Actually, he does a test. He says, all right, I'll tell you what. I'm going to go get some food and bring it back. And if you're still here when I get back, then we'll talk some more. He says, I still don't think that you got the right guy. So he goes and does that. Angel's still there. So Gideon says, all right, fine, 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 fine. I'll do it. 
I'll do it. Fine. I'll, I, I don't think it's going to work. I think it's going to be bad, but I'll, I'll do it. In fact, we know this is how Gideon feels because look at verse 27. If you skip all the way down there, it says, Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord commanded him. That's awesome. I'm glad that he did that. Wait. But because he was afraid of his family and of the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the day. Those worthless feelings, those fears kept creeping back on him. Those fears kept coming back to him. Even when an angel showed up in the flesh and said, God is going to give you the power to do this. God is going to allow you to accomplish this thing. Gideon still was like, oh, no, I can't do it. I'm too useless. I'm too afraid. Well, it goes on, and the way that the story goes, I'm going to shorten it a little bit because it's two whole chapters, but Gideon they find out in the town that it was him that did it. I guess the 10 guys he took with him sold him out. And we're like, no, it was Gideon that did that. And so they're all like, let's kill Gideon because he broke the altar to Baal. And Gideon's dad did something really smart right here. He says, why don't you just let Baal deal with him? Like if Baal is such a powerful God and Gideon messed it with him, let, let Baal deal with him. So they give Gideon a new name, Jura Baal, which means Baal's going to deal with you. Um, I mean, I, I thought that was cool. Like I'm glad that that doesn't happen in, in our life now. Be like, oh, you got in trouble at work? Well, your name is now Jared Boss because the boss is going to deal with you. And I, like, I just, I'm glad that doesn't happen because I like the name Patrick. It's, it's done me well this my whole life. But this goes on. And Gideon is there, and, and there's a little, while, a little while happens, and all of a sudden a bunch of armies show up. All those Ittites we were talking about before, the Malachites and the Amalekites and the other eastern peoples all come together, and they come against Israel. And God tells Gideon to blow the trumpet of his people and to call them together. And so he does this, and he, he brings them all together. But even after he sees this big crowd of them, he says, I still don't know that I'm supposed to be the one doing this, God. Tell you what I'm going to do. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this sheep skin that I got, this fleece, and I'm going to throw it outside tonight. And I'm going to go to sleep. And when I get up in the morning, if all the ground around it is dry but the sheep skin is wet, then I'll believe that you really want me to do this. And so he does that, and the Lord does as he asks. He gets up, and he wrings out a whole cup of water from the fleece. And Gideon's like, okay, 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 I got you, I got you, I got you. What if we did it the other way around? Like, if you really want me to do this, if you really want me to be the leader of this army, then I'm going to leave the fleece out tonight, and if it's wet or dry and everything else is wet, then I'll really believe you. This time for sure, God. And God does as he says. And he gets up in the morning, and there's dew all over the ground, but the fleece is dry. Now, I want you to understand, Gideon right now is not testing God. Because testing God is not something that you do. Gideon is, is testing God's faith in him. Gideon is saying, do you really want me to do this? Do you really want me to be in charge of this? Because I'm the youngest son of the smallest clan and the smallest tribe in Israel. Is it really... Something I can do? But the people come together. But God wants to show Gideon that it's not about him. God wants to show Gideon that it's all about the power of God. So he tells Gideon when he gets all the men together, you got too many folks. All right. Gideon says, what am I supposed to do? God says, here's what I want you to do. This is in Judges chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me, they would say. And now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. I feel like right then, Gideon's like, all right, cool, I'm out. And God's like, no, 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 you've got to stay. 
you're in charge, but tell everybody else. So he tells everybody else. And it says that 22,000 men go home and leave 10,000. And Gideon's all right, an army of 10,000. That's still a whole lot of folks. That's still a good amount. We can still do this. We still got this. And God says, whoa, 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 verse 4, there are still too many men. Take them down to the river. I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one will go with you, then he will go. If I say this one will stay, then he will stay. And so Gideon went down to the water. And the Lord said, separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog laps to the, from those who kneel down to drink. And so he did that. And when he saw that he had done that, there were 9,700 of them that kneeled down to drink and 300 that cupped from their hands and lapped like dogs while the rest kneeled down to drink. And the Lord said, these 300 men that lapped, I will give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So from 32,000 men and Gideon was still afraid, he's now got 300 now, I know some of you are thinking, well, I, I saw that movie, 300. I know, how this, I know how this works. You know, these are fighting men. They got their, their spears and their shields, and they're going to be. But no, these aren't Spartans. These are Israelites. These aren't men who were trained from birth to do battle. These aren't men itching for a fight. These are men that are just willing to, to stand up and fight for their freedom, to fight for their people and for their country. Men that understand that God is for them. They have just a little bit of confidence. But God says, 300 men against this army. All right, we can do that. But you know what? Don't even take swords. You don't need those. You don't need swords. Just get a torch and a clay jug to cover the torch so you can't see the light and a trumpet. That's all you need, and you'll be this army. Now, I want you to understand this wasn't a small army that came against them. This is the army of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Let's look at this. Verse 12 said, The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of camels. More, as much as the sand on the seashore, or at least as uncountable as the sand on the seashore. And then you got to think, there's got to be more soldiers than there are camels, because I don't know any army that would give every person in the army a camel. Although, if you got a free camel, I'd probably join the army. So, so there you go. Maybe that's an incentive. <laughs> but this army is innumerable. This army is staggering. This army is enormous. And God says, just get you 300 men with their torches and their uh, trumpets and you'll be good. You got this. And Gideon uh, is worried again. And so God says, go down, sneak down with your servant and listen to what they're saying at the campfire. And so he sneaks down and God protects them so that they can't see him and hear him. And, and he hears them talking and they say, you know, oh man, did you hear about this dream that the commanders are all having? About this giant wheel of cheese rolling down the hill and destroying us. God has given Midian into the hands of Gideon. And so he's encouraged. He goes back and he tells his guys, all right, listen to me. We're going to break up into three groups. We're going to surround the army camp. And when I break my torch and you can see it and I shout for Gideon and for the Lord, I know for the Lord and for Gideon, then everybody else do it and we'll scare them all and it'll be great. It'll be pandemonium. And so they do it and they spread out and they they, on their mark, they get close to the city or the, the camp and they smash the pots and the lights go up all over the place and they blow their trumpets and they shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. 
and chaos ensues in the camps. The men start fighting each other and killing each other off and running away because God has caused a spirit of chaos to come upon them. If you go on and read more in the story, you see that Gideon did win this day against overwhelming odds. But it really wasn't anything Gideon did. It really wasn't anything that Gideon actually did except for do exactly what God told him to do. God was the real power at work here. The book of Judges tells us that until Gideon died, there was peace in Israel. But I wonder if Gideon would sit around going, but I'm the youngest son of the smallest clan of the smallest tribe in Israel. I still don't feel like much because the one great thing that I accomplished, I was just there for. I just kind of showed up. Moving, uh, when I was a kid, my life was crazy. Um, I think it's a lot of why I feel the way I feel, why I have the struggles that I have now. My mom and dad split up when I was five because my dad got drunk one night and punched her. And he was an alcoholic and he got drunk a lot. And after that, my mom remarried and he was an alcoholic that threatened to kill her. And then she got divorced and remarried, and he was an alcoholic that was just mean when he was, out, when he was drunk. And on top of that, from when I was in kindergarten through I graduated high school, I went to 13 different schools. You got that? 13 different schools. That, that means that I was always the new kid. I was always fighting to fit in, always struggling to feel valuable, always struggling to have friends and to know. And it didn't help that even then that I was a little bit of a nerd, a little bit of, a, of a, into the sci-fi and fantasy, a little bit of I'd rather be reading than doing anything else in the world. That was before it became cool to be a nerd and a, and a geek and that kind of stuff. Like, that is cool now, right? If it's not, don't tell me. I, I'm... <laughs> Uh, I, I, my brain says that it is. Uh, I think it's cool, at least. But it was before all of this stuff happened. It was before the internet age when everybody was using technology. And all I wanted to do was get in and work on stuff. And so I've had this struggle my whole life. That even when my life was going the best it's ever gone, I still felt like I was moments away from it all being stripped away from me. Completely worthless. And it's something I fight all the time. And I deal with it constantly. But I, I'm a little glad for it. Because it makes me like Gideon, who God called a mighty warrior. It makes me like, like Noah and Abraham and these other giants of the faith that, that struggled Paul said he had a thorn in his flesh that he prayed and prayed it would go away and it just wouldn't. And it makes me feel useful to God. Paul, who was so religious that he couldn't stand it. that He was so zealous for doing what the law said that he would go out and murder people. Paul was saved on that road to Damascus. He was saved as that light shined down on him, and then he was immersed into Jesus Christ by the hands of Emmaus. 
or um, Ananias. And he figured it out. He's writing a letter to the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. He says, think of what you were when you first heard the message of God. Think about what you were. Because not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one will boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become our wisdom, for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness and our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's not in Judges 7. That's in 1 Corinthians. I forgot to change that on the slide. Sorry. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Even though I daily struggle with personal sin, even though I daily struggle with being able to accomplish anything, even though that prep talk that I did at the beginning that was so funny and laughed, I actually do that. Not looking in a little mirror. I'm glad I got a pink one. That made it even better. But I have to do that before I get on stage to set myself aside and say, I know that I'm not good enough to proclaim your gospel, but use me. Use me. In my weakness, be strong. And I know that everything that I accomplish or that God accomplishes through me, and it's all glory to him because I know how invaluable I am. Actually, that word's backwards. How unvaluable I am. But to him, I'm invaluable. To him, I'm worth everything. Worth enough that he gave part of himself to leave paradise and come live in this sin-infested world of darkness to prove to me that he loved me and that he could use me. Yes, even me. And he could use you. No matter where you feel, uh, fall on that scale of, of worth, I don't know. Maybe you feel more worthless than I do. Maybe you struggle with it every minute instead of every other day. Or maybe it's something that just comes up every once in a while. And most of the time you're great. I don't know where you are, but I know that there are moments. And in those moments, I want you to remember that I can't tell you how to not feel it. But I can tell you that even when you are, God is still for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the life that you have given us. I thank you for the joy that you have set before us. That even in our struggles to belong, even in our struggles to, to feel wanted and to feel needed and to feel useful, that even then we are useful to you. Help us to recognize that you are the God that is for us.
in big, giant ways. And I thank you for that. It's your name we pray. Amen.